So I would love to have you do it. Talk to me about it. Talk to me about it, about it please. But um, today we come to the third value. Uh, story matters. We, we, each of our values has matters after the, after the um, value, title, whatever. Um, but uh, in this series, 6-8, it's 6-8. And uh, th- this story matters is intimately tied to last week's sermon on grace matters. Uh, it, and what we're speaking of today is the complete story of God uh, with a clear message of grace as found in Jesus from the very beginning to the end of the story, from, from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, right? And it reads like this. This is how we wrote our, our value on story. Uh, we are rooted in the Scriptures, the story of a loving God pursuing His children. It is a story in four parts, what it was like, in other words, creation, what happened, the fall, what it is like now, redemption, and what it will be like in the future, restoration, right? And so the central character is Jesus, who lovingly bore in himself our judgment and guides us by his timeless teaching. The story extends through his followers in history. It encompasses and speaks to all issues of life, um, restoring our relationship to God and bringing freedom and joy where there was once none. And then for each of our values... We have a mature Christian profile. In other words, what a mature Christian looks like in light of that value. And I wanted to read this one today because I think it's fairly important. Uh, The mature Christian in the issue of story isn't only knowledgeable of God's word, but has allowed it to influence and guide all aspects of their life. They see themselves as rooted in the biblical story, which is larger than themselves, beginning in creation and ending in the hope of restoration. They They aren't just able to quote or lead a person to certain ideas or verses, but more importantly, are able to apply them in ways which are refreshing and challenging to their soul. Their worldview is shaped by the story of God and how they view life and reality. It's born out of this holistic story. They don't try to impress with their knowledge, but if one listens closely to the mature Christian, they can hear that their words are bolstered with the ideas and verses of Scripture. They no longer dwell on the elementary teachings, but have moved on to the deeper issues of the faith, and they don't try to impress, but they are just being. They're just being Jesus, so to speak, right? This was open from last week. Is it safe? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but last week, uh, as I said, we talked about this value of grace, and we said that oftentimes, <clears throat> after initially accepting God's grace at salvation, we tend to move into life uh, and, and begin to live as if we had to gain acceptance by what we do or how we look or through accomplishments or whatever. You remember the, the banking thing where we, we, we tend to think Jesus zeroed out our, our negative account. But the truth of the matter is when we come to Christ, Jesus floods our account with unlimited funds and we are free forever. You know, we never have to prove ourselves again. Uh, which means that we are restored to God by grace once and for all, that yet, yet we're also transformed by grace every single day, that God is working in us. And we, uh, we bring hurt and we bring pain to ourselves and to others uh, when we set up a protective hedge of law around ourselves, trying to protect ourselves, trying to live out of this, this law thing. Uh, and we, we then apply that to others and we become very judgmental and hurtful. Uh, life in Christ 
as we know, uh, means we have to bring our thoughts and our hearts back to the cross, allowing God to crucify our desires rather than fruitlessly trying to save ourselves via anything other than grace, right? Living out of the eternal value that we have in Jesus, right? Just resting in Jesus. And we know that life is ambiguous and that the mature Christian has to start to uh, become comfortable living in that ambiguity, uh, living in community with others of different viewpoints and different opinions and things like that, that do life differently or think differently. And, and what we end up, te- we, we tend to do is we tend to focus on the externals of people rather than the heart. We get all upset about the externals instead of looking at somebody's heart. For example, uh, someone might come to the pastor and say that a young woman wearing a short skirt and low-cut blouse or whatever it is at church is over the top, right? But, you know, it's just too provocative and all that kind of stuff. But the person criticizing that person might be wearing like a tight red cocktail dress, right? Which could be just as provocative in somebody else's eyes. This, the style of dress is just culturally acceptable in different circles and with different people. Somebody shops at Ann Taylor, another shops at Urban Outfitters. People just see things differently. We, we have our differences and that's okay. Right? We need to stop just focusing on the externals. For instance, my friend was in Turkey once. And he was sitting at an outdoor cafe with a bunch of Muslim guys and uh, Western clad, because Turkey in Istanbul, it's a very metropolitan place and a lot of Westerners and all that stuff. It's kind of like in the between of Western and Eastern thought, you know. And um, all these Western clad women were, were walking by, strolling by in shorts and halter tops and things like that, tight clothing. And his, his Muslim guys, these Muslim guys he was with, took no notice of these women. They didn't bat an eye at him, didn't take a second look. And he thought, oh, they're really good Muslims. They're really, you know, like pious and, you know, self-controlled, you know. But then a woman walked by in full burqa from head to foot, right? And the only thing showing on this woman was her hands, her feet, and her eyes. But her eyes uh, were painted with heavy makeup, and her hands and feet were painted with henna. And the wind blew the burqa against her body, revealing her feminine form. And these guys went nuts, like they were like drunken, you know, college students at a frat party or or at a strip joint or something like that. They were attracted to that, but they weren't attracted to the Western women. See, the gospel isn't about judging externals. And we've got to understand that. It's, It's about a right relationship with God. Allowing him to correct our hearts to live out of grace, with, uh, which leads to external behavioral change. It makes me more holy in how I express myself externally over time. And this is the reason we need, to, we need to grasp hold of this, because we need to allow anybody to walk into this room and feel comfortable. That's, this is why grace is important. This is why sometimes over the history of the church, people haven't felt safe to walk into a church because you had to come in and fit into the mold, the external mold. We're not about the forms. We're about the content. The forms are important only in the sense that they're driven by a healthy content, right? And what we find is what we think is right 
Sometimes it's not right at, at all, at all, or it's 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 at the least it's neither right nor wrong. It's just a matter of preference to us, right? And grace ad- addresses the deeper questions as to why we do what we do. Why do I seek attention in negative ways? Right? Why does that person bother me so much with how they act? Why does my mind need very little external stimuli, if any at all, to make me so perverted? To make my thoughts go astray? We were also sitting in a meeting one time with a short-term meeting planning we were planning our trip to Istanbul Turkey there was a bunch of single men and women in this trip and it, because it's a muslim country you always get your short-term people to think about how they dress because you want to have a voice with muslims so if you do show up in western outfits you know very revealing, they, they tend not to really respect you. So you want to be able to do everything you can to, to have a voice with somebody. So we, we always encourage people to dress modestly and stuff like that. But in the middle of the trip, we always built in a day where we could go to a Western hotel and just have a blast and be ourselves and, and go swimming and not worry about what, what people are thinking and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the guys on the trip who particularly st- struggled with his thought life said to all the women, very piously, he said, oh, ladies, I, I would really appreciate it that when we went to the hotel, that if you could refrain from wearing a bikini, it would help my thought life. That, that was a pretty brave statement. I thought, like, uh, all the guys were like, oh, dude, why did you have to say that? <laughs> right? Like, that was like, keep your mouth shut. And um, one of the women who I knew did like to wear a bikini, and she was an attractive woman, said, okay. If, if, if I can't wear my bikini, then I would appreciate it if you didn't take your shirt off, because it would help my thought life. <laughs> you know, like she said it with a scowl, right? The, the point is, his thought life is his business. It's his responsibility before the Lord. It has nothing to do with whether she wears a bikini or not, right? Where is that slide? Do, is that where that slide is? The, 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 yeah, I love that. You see that? I can't even read it from here. Everything covered but her eyes, what a cruel male-dominated culture. And then you get over to the Muslim woman. Nothing covered but her eyes, what a cruel male-dominated culture. You see how we see things differently? It is so true. We need to focus on the heart. See, there's a fear. There's a fear in us, in church people, right, that we're going to degenerate into sin and lawlessness if we actually do live by grace. If we actually do treat each other with grace. But grace is the only avenue of true unity, true patience, true love, and to, get, and to be able to give and receive forgiveness in community. And as I said, it's the, it's the only way that we can actually embrace anybody who walks into this room and love them well. Our goal is to live out of grace Right? Allowing God to crucify that old self with all its fear, with all its pride, with all its anger, and with all of its insecurity, and to model the heart of God to each other and to the world. And to do that well, we must understand the complete story of God as seen in the Scriptures and be committed to the Scriptures. To see that grace has been God's intention all along 
through the continual story from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. I've forgotten how many chapters are in Revelation. But this begs the question. This begs a question. What's the relationship between the law and the promise? What's the relationship between the law and the promise? If you've been around church long enough, you know what I'm talking about. Isn't the Old Testament all about the law and the New Testament all about grace and Jesus? Right? Aren't they two different stories? See, most Christians view the story of God, the story of history and and, and God as as seen in the Scriptures, something like this. Number one, uh, God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect harmony with God. We all tend to agree on that one, right? Number two, they chose to turn away. They fell into sin. We remember that. We all tend to agree on that one. It's not a hard one to disagree with. But here, number three is where we go awry. It says... God sat back after they fell into sin, right? God sat back and scratched his head like he was confused. And he said, well, since they've fallen into sin, then I'll give them this law to live by. And if they live up to it, if they live rightly to my law, then I'll accept them. If they don't, then I'll cut them off. Which is not grace. And then number four, when he finally figured out that, you know, that was useless, that people can't live up to this law. Then he sent Jesus as a payment for our sin, for the very law that revealed sin in us, that put us in that place, right? And and in that view, Jesus is sort of like an afterthought, right? Like God's making up things as he goes, but that's not really how the scriptures teach. See, in this view, the Old and New Testaments are separate stories. The scriptures become a disjointed bunch of stories, short stories, from different people, different authors with no unifying theme. But grace has always been the central theme, and the end goal of the story has always been Jesus. Scripture must be read as more like a novel than a bunch of short stories. Jesus said the Scriptures refer to Him, right? That the Scriptures speak of Him, and He was referring back to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Paul and others saw the gospel of grace all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what they were teaching from, right? They didn't have the New Testament. They were speaking it, right? They didn't have the New Testament at the time, and they preached this message of grace by way of the Hebrew Scriptures, by way of the Old Testament. You know, as I wrote out my will, I did it with full assurance that when I die, when I'm pushing up daisies, that like the, the, no matter what the circumstances, my will will be carried out as I've written it down, Right? And Paul is making that same argument in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25, where he says that just as with a human document, when, uh, where nothing can be added or taken away, it's the same with God's promise. And beginning with this passage today, I want to give you one small glimpse into the unity of Scripture as it pertains to the story of grace. And it says this, Starting in verse 15, in verse chapter 3 of Galatians, it says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Listen carefully to this. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, like a legal document, right, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham, 
and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come, The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, and a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Confusing. (laughs) Now, it's easy to see what he's referring to when talking about a human covenant, right? A will or a contract with a mediator between two parties, right? You've got a lawyer involved and all that kind of stuff. Paul's making a a contrast to God's promise given to Abraham, where? Back in Genesis 12. That's the covenant promise that God gave to Abraham back in that passage. But he he says that 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 promise or that covenant was made by one party, and that is God, not two parties. All right? And it says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says this. The Lord had said to Abram, his name was Abram at the time, then then he gets renamed to Abraham just so you're not confused. The Lord said to Abram, your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now in Galatians 3, as Paul refers to the promise in Gen- he, Paul refers to this promise in Genesis 12, and also in Genesis 15, it's re- restated. And there are some confusing things. For instance, the idea of seed, right? Which comes later in Genesis 12, 7, and 13, 15, and 24, 7. Uh, Paul says there were four parts to this promise that God gave to Abram in Genesis 12 and 15. It says, uh, number one, that there's this seed, or this offspring in the singular, he, will, he promised land. Uh, he, number three, he said that Israel will be blessed and that his descendants will be numerous. And then number four, that Israel will be a blessing to all nations of the earth, all people groups of the earth. Very important uh, promise. Uh, so God promised a number of things here. And in one sense, God was making it clear to Abraham that the Messiah will come through his lineage, through, through Abraham and all these people that are to come after him. Now, it's interesting to think that Abraham, at the time, when he's called, was just a man chosen by God. He just picked up a chosen, boink, right? He was an Iraqi, called out of the Ur of Chaldeans. Our father of faith is an old Iraqi dude, right? He's probably a lot tanner than me, right? He's an old Iraqi dude. That is so ironic, right? His background was that he probably worshipped some local deity. He was a pagan, chosen by God. Boink, it just picks him up. He didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have the temple. He didn't have the church. It wasn't around yet. 
He didn't have orthodoxy. He didn't have doctrine. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have much to go on at all. He may have had a few stories of the flood and creation and all that to go on, but that's all he had and God calls him. So God calls, God chooses, not us. Remember Ephesians 2 from last week, right? So orthodoxy or right theology although very important, isn't fully necessary for salvation. You need a little bit. You need to know what you're being saved from and what you're being saved to, but that's about it. All that's really necessary is this passive righteousness that we talked about last week, and that is that we receive God's grace by faith in God's promise, specifically in the promise of Jesus. Now, a lot of people will say that they believe in God. But very few people will say that they believe God. And that's where Scripture and the story of God comes into play. It's very important that we don't just say we believe in God, but that we believe God, right? There's a big difference. Because we can't make up God for what we want Him to be. God reveals Himself. In the scriptures, in this book, in the Holy Bible. He reveals himself in the scriptures. He reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he reveals himself even in creation. And we accept and we believe God on his terms. On how he's revealed himself. And Abraham thankfully believed God in that four-part promise. He believed him. As much as it was a sacrifice for him to do so, he believed him. And the other confusing thing in this verse is that when it says a mediator doesn't just represent one party, but God is one. Very confusing. Because a contract or a covenant is always made between two parties, two people, or two groups, right? It's so confusing that over 300 interpretations are out there over this passage. But, since I am so intelligent, let me bring some clarity to you. Right? <laughs> Actually, I stand on the shoulders of great people, right? In, in studying this stuff, it's, it's important that we wrestle with these things, right? R.C. Sprawl, God rest his soul, died a year or two ago. I forget how long ago it was. Actually, it might have been longer than that. But R.C. Sprawl was often asked when he was alive, what he thought was a very strange question, and that is, what is your life's verse? In other words, if you only had one verse to go by, if you were locked away someplace, you didn't have a Bible, but you could remember one verse, what would that verse be? And it was strange to him, because he's like, I would want the whole of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, I would want the whole book. But, but to pick one, he would pick this one, Genesis fifteen seventeen, which says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, <laughs> a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, that is strange, because that's not the verse we would pick, right? You might pick, like, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, you know, that one, or whatever. You might pick something else. You might pick, some, pick something from Ephesians chapter 2, you know, by grace you're saved through faith, in this not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. You might pick that one. But you wouldn't pick Genesis fifteen seventeen. It's just a weird verse, right? It's just a very strange verse. But to understand Galatians chapter 3 and this one-party idea, we have to understand this verse in Genesis fifteen seventeen. Very important. 
You must understand the covenant process that God was undertaking with Abraham at that moment. Because in Old Testament times, way back then, if, a, if one king conquered another king, right, he was the victor, they would cut a covenant together. Not make a covenant, but they would cut a covenant. Right? They'd sacrifice a bunch of animals, and then they would cut them in half. Kind of gross. And then they would, like, arrange them in this, like, opposite of each other, making this sort of bloody aisle, right? And then the two parties would walk down the middle of this aisle, and they would be reciting the promise that they were making to each other as a covenant. And what they were basically saying to each other was, that if I break my covenant with you, may I end up like these animals dead, right? Two parties cutting a covenant promise together, a contract for what? For future relationship, for peace between the two. So let's read around Genesis 15, 17. It says in verse 9, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these things to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. I guess they were too small. So as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Verse 17, when the sun had set, and this is this weird verse, set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And that's the land part of that promise. And we'll end there. So God cut a covenant with Abraham in this passage. He made a promise of peace, of reconciliation, of relationship. But the interesting thing is that when you read this passage, when it came time to walk that aisle, Abraham was in a deep sleep off to the side someplace. God by himself, represented by this smoking fire pot and this burning torch, walked that bloody aisle, cutting the covenant as one party with Abraham all by himself. So in essence... What God was saying was, I am making this covenant with you as one party, right? The whole covenant is therefore based on my word, my promise, by grace, and not by your ability to hold up your end of the bargain, to live up to it. It's not based on a two-party behavior thing, right? God's saying, if I fail at this, which he will not, (laughs) right? Then I am placing all of my deity on the line, all of my character, everything that I am is going on the line here. And you do nothing for it, Abraham, and all your descendants after you. It's a very gracious of God if you think about it. And it reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2 of last week. So to summarize, what Paul is saying is that God chooses us not based on our merit, not how well we do at anything, but just like he chose Abraham, this old Iraqi pagan, right? (laughs) Abraham believed God's promise to him. And this is why it says in Romans 4.3, what does Scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. Credited means it was just given to him. And in verse 13 it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that is just imputed to us, laid upon us by faith. And so when we hear, standing here in 2018, almost 2019, almost 10 years of our church, amen, right? When we hear that God chose us and that he sacrificed himself on the cross for us, that he took our sin away, that he became cursed on that cross, that he places his righteousness upon us, that we believe it and we believe it at every day of our lives. Not just the day that we're saved. That's not the only time that it's important, but that we should know that grace happened on that cross and it has nothing to do with what I do to be right with God or how well I live this out. Even now, Jason's going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. Just like it didn't matter with Abraham. Paul adds very adeptly, and I love this part. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends upon the law, then it no longer depends upon a promise, but God in His grace gave it to Abraham, what? Through a promise. Amen. Amen. You see, to base your relationship with God on the law, on how well you live up to the standards, takes two parties. Takes two. One party sets the standard as the sovereign king, and the other party keeps it as the vassal king. But the promise or the covenant came 430, that's a long time, 430 years later, or before the law. The promise came before the law, 430 years later, right? The law can't nullify the promise, uh, the promise because God's word can't be broken. God promised. It was him that cut the covenant. He kept the covenant with his people. It is not based on anything we do. So think of it this way. Paul uses the word inheritance in uh, Galatians 3.18. If I'm promised an inheritance by my father in his will, I don't do anything to earn that inheritance. I just believe that he promised me an inheritance. I'm his kid. It's just how it's done. It's the relationship, right? But if somebody else comes to me and they say, you know, I got $10 million in the bank. I got no descendants, got no kids, got no wife, got no family, anything else. And I kind of like you, and I'm going to die soon. So if you take care of me, and if you do it well enough to my standard, then when I die, I'll give you my inheritance. That is based on performance. It's a conditional statement. Well, God promised to Abraham, and likewise to us, that we are his children by grace through faith alone way back then. Way back then with Abraham. And all that is his is ours based only on grace through faith. The promise came first. It can't be broken. He never said, if you obey my law, then you will have my inheritance. He never said that. 
The promise depends on God, and therefore it's based on our relationship to God as his children, not on performance. So God, our, our grace always preceded the law. He then says, verse 19, what then was the purpose of the law? What good is it? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And then also in verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that he was, that, that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Earn it? No, believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Right? I'm going to keep doing this and not really drink. <laughs> uh, in Indonesia, we had a house helper. It was customary to have somebody, and it was so cheap that we could do it, right? And I loved it. I loved it. You know, I loved having a house help. Uh, anybody would, really. Uh, all I had to do, she knew exactly how to make my tea. And all I had to do was say, nah, her name was nah, like, nah, right? Nah, minta teh. Like, I'm, give me some tea. And she would say, yeah, pa, bentar pa. Everybody in Indonesia talks like that, by the way. They always, like, bark. Nobody just kind of talks. Like, yeah, pa, And I'm like, okay. Yeah, one, one second, pa. And um, pa is mister. Um, <laughs> and then magically, like a minute later, my tea would show up on my desk just perfectly made. It was wonderful. I loved it. My wife doesn't do it. My kids don't do that for me. I loved Indonesia. I miss it very much. It was wonderful. I have to go make my own tea. Gosh. Uh, but not, I didn't just make me tea or clean our house. She also babysat our children. She took care of our children. You can imagine a young couple's concern with what their children would learn since Na'a was uh, a poor animistic Muslim, uh, a, a woman from a very highly spiritualistic culture. She had input into the character and the development of our children. She was a pedagogue. You don't know that word. It just means a nanny or a tutor. Uh, you know, she was a nanny or a tutor to our children. She was, a, she was somebody that guided our children along. And likewise, Paul uses that word pedagogue in verse 24 here. The law, he says, is like a pedagogue charged with the discipline and the protection and the leading of a child to school. The pedagogue has moral input into their lives. The, their principles would guide a child into adulthood. And all that kind of stuff. And the law, he says, is like this. Leading us into our adult life of faith, revealing to us what God's standard is. But at some point, the child grows and is released from the hand of the nanny, the pedagogue. However, the lessons learned by the law carry on into adult life. You see, Scripture tells us that the law of God's written on our hearts We naturally know right from wrong in many cases, but we need to understand it even more. However, the law more clearly laid out in the Scripture, right? It's clearly laid out in the Scripture for us, was instituted as this pedagogue which leads us to Christ and instructs us on God's standard of living, our standard of life. The law, by defining sin more clearly, 
reveals sin in us, doesn't it? And it takes us by the hand, and it brings us to the point that we realize that we need a Savior, that we can't live up to the law, that we need grace. We need God to do it for us. The caterpillar in the ring of fire that we talked about last week. We're not living in a world where we can just choose not to sin. Sometimes you can, but it's always going to trip you up, right? Even if it's just in your own head. Remember, that's, that's viewing sin too superficially that we talked about last week, which leaves us in the position of being God of our own selves. And sin is a condition of humanity. You have to remember that. Paul makes it deathly clear here that we are prisoners locked away in our sin nature, awaiting release, and release comes through faith in Christ. We're justified by faith in Christ and transformed by His grace daily. One way to look at the law and the promise is that God, as our Father, is promising that we have an inheritance and says this about concern, or concerning his law. He says, since you are my children, because you are my children, already loved and accepted by me, the law is my standard of living. The moral law. Not civic and uh, uh, ceremonial law. Those died in the New Testament. They, they went away after the temple went away and all that stuff. We can talk about that another time. But because you are my children, the law is my standard for living, the moral law of God. But you can't live that standard without me. I know that as your father, he's saying. My grace will grow you over time into my likeness and convicting you of this standard and enabling you to, to walk it out better and better and better. God's moral law is always our standard, always. The law, therefore, is good. It's wonderful. It's holy. It originates from God and it defines His standard of life. It's something which we should seek to attain to, but under grace. Again, we don't get our value by how well we attain to it, but through the relationship established by grace with God. Daily, it reminds us of our need for Him, and should continually drive us back to grace, which has been from the beginning of the, very whole, the whole story, from Genesis 1 on. So if I'm trusting in something other than the gospel of grace, then I am breaking the very first commandment of God's law, you shall have no other gods before me, because I'm putting myself in as God. If I'm trusting in my looks the way I dress, my eloquence, my skills, my money, money, drugs, sex, alcohol, attention from others, approval from others, my pride or my accomplishments or anything to make me feel secure in life. If I'm, if I'm seeking comfort or approval or control or power over others to find my security, the law says that I've set myself up as my own God. How often do we do those things? Quite often. Until I can learn to bring unhealthy desire before the cross or to the cross, allowing God to crucify that old self that plagues me, I'm breaking God's first commandment. And it's interesting that if you read the Ten Commandments, which which is found in Exodus 20, which is the law, right? The law in the shortened form. There's laws 
Uh, we'll explain that later. But you, you realize that if you read those, if we break any of the others, any of the other commandments, we're automatically breaking the first commandment. Right? Because we put, breaking all the others means we put ourselves in as God. We know more than God. We know better than God, which makes me God. Tim Keller uh, says that those Christians who live trying to justify their existence by the law are the most insecure, angry, frustrated people around, even more so than those outside of the church. So many in the church live as if they're trying to prove themselves by the law that it makes the church a mean and hostile place at times. That's why it is important that leadership walks with the Lord strongly. Right? How many times have you heard heard people say, I mean, I hear this stuff all the time, Christians love to eat their own. Right? How many of you have had that hurtful church experience in your past? And this is why. Many Christians out there in the world aren't living by grace. They think their account was zeroed out, and now they've got to keep earning their, their keep. That's not the gospel. If a person's living by the law, they're not only frustrated, angry, and insecure, but they most, most definitely will develop some sort of a secret sin life, even if it's just in their own heads. We must live by grace. The complete story of God. And this is where so many more, this is why so many more one another verses are found in Scripture that espouse encouragement and love and forgiveness and mercy as opposed to verses which talk about confrontation in Scripture. This is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 22. He said, Jesus, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's all about relationship. If we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, is it possible Is it even possible to live in anger and secret sin and pride and fear and bitterness, etc., and so on and so forth? No, I don't think it is. If you're loving your neighbor as yourself, don't you think you'll be leading them by grace towards the cross instead of belittling them or making them feel even worse about themselves? Because we all kind of feel badly about ourselves, some greater or lesser degrees, or at different points in our lives. Most of us don't need criticism. We need encouragement. Don't we? 6.8 seeks to live out of this story of God, of God pursuing his children throughout history. A story that is in four parts. What it was like, creation, what happened, the fall into sin, what it's like now, redemption in Jesus, and what it will be like, our future hope for little Casper and all the rest of us. The future hope of the glory of God and the reconciliation of all things. A story which has been marked by God's grace. Your homework. You got homework. Oh, oh. He had to give us homework, right? Your homework this week is to go home and read chapter 20 of Exodus, the, the, the Ten Commandments, and pray that God will reveal to you where you're not living up are giving him lordship in your life, where you're not, where you've not been living out of grace. Ask him where you've broken his commandments, and make amends with him, 
and make amends with others. But resist the urge to say, I'm sorry for this thing, but scratch your butts, right? (laughs) Scratch your butts. Because how does this sound? I'm sorry for how I yelled at Vinny yesterday. But, God, do you realize what he did to me? What does the but do? It negates the sorry, doesn't it? It's not really a sorry. It's much different to say, Lord, I am so sorry for how I treated Vinny. And I want to treat him better. And I want us to have a good relationship. Speak to both of our hearts that we can understand how to have a great relationship together. That's a very different statement, isn't it? So scratch your butts. <laughs> Love God by loving his commandments. Remembering your value comes not from how well you live up to them. That's why we get a sense of humor in grace. We can laugh at ourselves. We can laugh at our mistakes. But we, we have this relationship to God by grace through faith. It brings such security to us. Love others by extending grace as you've been extended it. Take your sin to the cross and allow God to crucify it there and find freedom in Christ once more. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so, so much for your story. We thank you so, so much for the thread, the, well, maybe not even the thread, but the, the cadence, the drumbeat, the overall theme of grace throughout its pages. And how it's not just limited to this book, but it, it pierces our hearts, it, 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 it takes over our lives, it flows through our blood, it flows through the synopses of our brains, it takes over all that we are. And we know that many of us in this room have had that moment where we first met you. But we want more of you. We want to know more of you. Holy Spirit, come and fill us with your presence. Fill our church. Fill every individual in this room with your presence so that we can be people that act like children of God who love you and love others really, really, really well because we are so deeply rooted in your story that it's just overtaken all that we are. 